Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31, we will read to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a lofty text, (laughs) very lofty text. But as I like to do, just a brief recap on what we looked at last week as we looked at verses 26 through 30 which completes a thought that Paul started in verse 18, where he talks about our suffering. He talks about the suffering that we are going through in this present age is not worth to be compared with the glory that is yet to be revealed in us. And that's one of the benefits of the indwelling Holy Spirit, is that he ministers to us as we go from suffering all the way to glory. And that's what this passage is talking about. Our travels from suffering in this age to the glory that is to be yet revealed and how the Holy Spirit brings us along all through that travel. The suffering in this present age is nothing compared to the glory that that we will receive in the age to come. We saw that creation groans, that we groan, that the Spirit himself groans for us as he intercedes for us before the Father. And then our hope The thing that we are looking forward to, the thing that we are placing our faith and trust in is in the culmination of our adoption. We have been declared by the Spirit to be our adopted children of God, sons and daughters of God, as the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are indeed sons of God. But that will be made known and it will be manifest to all in the age to come when Christ returns and we will be like him as we will see him as he truly is and we will be like him as we are revealed to be the sons and daughters of God, the redemption of our bodies. The second thing we saw in that passage is that until that time, then the Spirit provides a vital intercessory and preservative ministry. We saw that the the Spirit prays for us because of our own weakness in prayer. And how the Spirit, as we said, groans as he intercedes for us with inexpressible words. And then because of all of this, then, as Paul says in verse 28, we can know because of all of this work that God is doing for us on our behalf through the Son and through the Spirit, we can know that God will work all things for our good, as he has always been working all things for for our good, from suffering to glory. Everything that happens in this life is for the express purpose of conforming us into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. We are being conformed 
into his image day by day. And that the good that God has in mind for us is our eventual and ultimate glorification. So while we can and do often receive temporal goods in this lifetime, blessings in this lifetime, that is not our hope. That is not our promise. We are not, as we said last week, expecting our best life now. We are expecting our best life in the life to come, in the age to come. So we see the, the Spirit's preserving powers. We are carried along from God's foreknowledge as he sees us and sets his love upon us before the creation of the world, all the way to our ultimate glorification. So all through this, God has sovereignly orchestrated by his sovereign will, by his decrees, by his providence. He's worked all of these things. He has orchestrated the ends, and he has also orchestrated the means to those ends. And then all of this is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father foreknew, elected, and ordained it all. The Son, Jesus, accomplished the saving work by living and dying for his people. And the Spirit then does the work of applying that finished work of Christ in our lives by calling us, by working faith and repentance in us, by sanctifying us, and then eventually glorifying us. So that's a recap from last week. But before we get into the text this morning, I want to talk a little bit about another doctrine that is uh, dear, near and dear to our hearts in our Reformed faith, and that is the perseverance of the saints. I'm sure you've all heard of the perseverance of the saints. And this is the doctrine that essentially states that those whom God chose and for whom Christ died and whom the Spirit then sanctifies can never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. Now, I could have gone to the Canons of Dort because they have a whole head of doctrine that talks about the perseverance of the saints, but then I would have had to have cited the whole thing and it would have, it would have made the handout like three pages long or four pages long. So I just took excerpts from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I think, again, just succinctly and in relatively few words, states this doctrine very clearly. As uh, you probably have there in your handout, uh, chapter 17 of the Westminster Convention of Faith, Article 1 says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So those whom God foreknew, those whom God has chosen to be in the beloved, to be in Christ, to be in union with Christ, who by his spirit he is effectually called into the faith, and who have, are now being sanctified by his spirit, as this, the confession says, can neither totally nor finally, which means not that you, as a believer you're going to have moments of doubt, that you're going to have moments where maybe you backslide, moments where if you were to look at a snapshot of your life, you may not even appear to give any evidence of saving faith in your life. But the point is, is that you will never totally nor finally fall away from the faith. Whatever it is that has brought you out, will, you know, God will bring you back in. I always like to use the example of King David because King David, a man after God's own heart, did some awful things in his life, right? And you know, if you were just to look at that snapshot of his life from 2 Samuel 11 where he commits the sin with Bathsheba, if that's the only thing you knew about King David 
you would say King David is going to go burn in hell after what he did. He committed adultery willingly, and then he plotted to have the, his mistress's husband slain so he could take her for himself. And he already at that time had eight or nine wives in his stable to begin with. You would look at that and say, this is not a man after God's own heart. This is a man who is a sinner like anybody else and is probably worthy of hell. But if that's all you saw of his life, then that might be what you conclude. But that's not all the story is, right? You know, the prophet Nathan comes to him and confronts him with his sin. And when David, you know, like most people, when you, when you confront somebody with the sin that they've committed and kind of couch it in hypothetical terms that there was a man who did this, then if you're guilty of doing that, you sort of overcompensate. Well, that man should be, you know, he should be killed. He should be whatever. And we should return sevenfold, whatever he is. Then Nathan turns to David and says, guess what? You're the man. He's like, oh, oops. (laughs) So the point being, no one, uh, someone who has been accepted in the, in Christ by God can never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but will persevere until the end. And of course, additionally, this perseverance does not depend on our will, our faith, our efforts to maintain it, but by the unchangeableness of God's will, the efficacy of Christ's work, and the abiding presence of the Spirit. Those, again, the triune God is preserving you. God's eternal decree does not change. Christ's work was effective to save you, and the Spirit's presence Rebides in you. Again, chapter or section two of chapter 17. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their, that is the elect, their free will, but upon the immutability or unchangeableness of the decree of election. God's decree of election is unchangeable. He makes a decree, it will come to pass. Flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy and merit of the intercession of Christ. Christ's satisfaction on the cross was an an efficacious. It worked, it accomplished what it meant to accomplish on the cross. When Jesus died, what did he say? Three words. It is finished. What is finished? The satisfaction that that he provided for us, for our sin, the propitiation, It is finished means that the work is done. It has been done. The wrath has been appeased. If that could be changed, then Christ wouldn't be saying it is finished. He would just be saying, well, I've made it ready. I've made it available. I've accomplished something that now you, by your own free will, can accomplish on your own strength. No, he says it is finished. I've done it. And then the abiding of the spirit and the seed of God within them. I love that phrase, the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace, all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. In other words, the covenant of grace is an unbreakable covenant. God is the promise keeper. He makes a promise in the covenant of grace and it will come to pass. Now, some like to call this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, as once saved, always saved. And essentially, that is true. But I think it is a gross reduction of the richness of this doctrine and has been abused and misused in the history of the church. Because when you say once saved, always saved, it makes it sound like as long as you've made some kind of profession of faith, you can do whatever you want. You're saved. It doesn't matter how you conduct your life. And that's not 
at all entirely. That's not remotely true. We don't believe that. No one believes that you can be a Christian and just you know, make a profession of faith and then live however you want. Salvation is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. True saving faith produces sanctified fruit as a sure evidence. Several verses, I won't read them all, but the classic one is Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. So in other words, your salvation is not something you've done. You've been saved by grace, by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So the salvation is a free gift of God given to you through faith. Not a result of works. You can't do anything to earn it. So that no one may boast. So no one's going to be in heaven saying, I got here. I did it on my own. You know, I climbed the mountain. I made it here. What about the rest of you? How did you do? No, it is not of works. You cannot boast. And then he goes on to say, very important verse, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We are God's project, <laughs> his craft. We are his, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in other words, we are saved by faith for good works, not saved by grace through faith to live however you want. So as we come to Romans 8, and particularly these verses, we're going to see ample grounds for the doctrine of the perseverance of saints as we con- contemplate God's everlasting love for us in Christ. So if you've ever doubted God's love for you, after reading these nine verses, doubt no more. Doubt no more. Because this passage, passage brings incalculable comfort to the Christian, no matter what you're going through in your life. And it all begins with these wonderful words. If God is for us, who is against us? And then it concludes with nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So first we're going to look at God is for us in verses 31 to 34. And again, this passage begins in verse 31, where Paul asks two questions. He asks two questions. The first question asks us to consider our response to these things. What shall we say to these things? And as always, when you see that phrase, these things, it's always pointing to something he's already said. In particular, what he has said in verses 18 to 30, how we are led from suffering to glory. And But also, if you remember when we began Romans 8, we argued that Romans 8 marks a conclusion, not just to what he's been saying in Romans 6 and 7, but a conclusion to what he's been saying all throughout the book of Romans. This is the Paul. Paul is going to conclude his exposition of the gospel in this chapter. He has taken us on a grand tour of the doctrine of salvation, and he has given us the most detailed exposition and explanation of the gospel and all of its benefits. And he's going to conclude it here in these verses as he starts then to begin the practical application side of the letter with a brief sidebar in Romans 9 through 11, which we will consider in coming weeks, Lord willing. But the, the, these things, in my opinion, encapsulates everything he has said from Romans 1.16 leading up to here. Everything. What shall we say to all of these things? 
Now, the second question is a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who is against us? I mean, it's, the answer is kind of expected and it's obvious. But we also need to note that the phrasing, that phrase, if God is for us, is not meant to generate doubt. It's not like, well, is God for you or not? It is rather, it carries the weight of certainty and should really be translated, since God is for you. Since God is for you, who can be against you? And again, everything the apostle is going to say from here on out flows from this rhetorical question. Since God is for you, who can be against you? So do you feel the power of that statement? I mean, just let that sink in. For If God is for you, what can possibly be against you? If the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving creator of the universe is on your side, does it matter what's on the other side? Again, going back to the life of David and the battle with Goliath. Goliath, pretty big guy. Depending on you know, the textual variance in 2 Samuel 17, he's either 9 foot 6 or 6 foot 9. It doesn't matter compared to the average height of the average Jew in those days. He would have still towered over him. <laughs> At 6 foot 9, he would have still been a giant. doesn't matter. He was a big guy. And all, you know, for days and days and I think it was 40 days, he's out there, you know, bring me a man to fight. And we will just decide this on the battle, champion versus champion. And the Israelites are up there cowering on their hill as Goliath, day after day, comes out there. Who is a man among you to challenge me? And then David comes bringing lunch for his brothers. And he hears the challenge. And he's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to dare defy the army of the living God? If God is for you, who can be against you? He goes out there by himself. And Goliath is like, am I a dog that you send this little pipsqueak after me? And he's like, look, I've got the Lord of hosts on my side. What do you got? And what happens? Well, Goliath goes down one stone right in the middle of the head and he's down. And then he cuts off his head. And David is, you know, he's, he's victorious in the Lord. If God is for you, who can be against you? So everything else in verses 32 to 39 then details the people, the circumstances, and the situations that could possibly be against us. And a spoiler alert, God is greater than all of them, in case you were wondering. I'm going to spoil that ahead of time. Now the first thing that could possibly be against us is God himself in verse 32. He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him... Freely give us all things. So the reason why God is for us is because he did not spare his own son. If you remember back to Romans 5, 8, where God shows his love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we were at our absolute worst, God gives us his absolute best. In fact, the language here is very reminiscent of Genesis twenty-two sixteen, where Abraham was willing to offer up his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, Isaac. God does exactly the same thing. He offers his son, his only son, the son whom he loves, Jesus. And Paul's argument here is in that now familiar from the greater to the lesser type of argument that he, he's used all throughout in various other places. So in other words, if God gave us his best when we were at our worst, now that we're no longer at our worst, will not God give us lesser things? 
right? If I give you my absolute best because of my love for you and I give it to you in your absolute worst state, now that you're no longer in your absolute worst state, why would I not freely then give you anything else? That's Paul's argument. Now that we're sons and daughters, he's going to give us everything because he's given us his son when we are at our absolute worst. Furthermore, in verse 33, who could possibly level any charge against us with God? As he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So with this verse and the next one, we're sort of like taken back into God's courtroom. If you remember, we were in God's courtroom in Romans chapter 3. And in that case, Paul was as the defense attorney, as the prosecutor, bringing the covenant curses against us, highlighting the, the charges on the indictment of God's wrath and judgment against sinners, all sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. And at the end of that, we are left speechless. We have nothing to say in response to everything God has laid out against us for our sin. But then in Romans 3.21, you get that great, you know, but now, you know, the, the righteousness of God has been revealed to us apart from the law, right? Well, we're back in the courtroom motif. But instead of God as judge over our sin, we see now God as judge after he has already declared us justified and righteous and innocent. And the logic goes, if God has already rendered his verdict of justified in Christ Jesus, who can bring any further charge against us? What's the answer to that question? Nobody. No one. We have the Supreme Court in our United States, right? The judicial branch. And at the top of that judicial branch is the Supreme Court. And once, a court, uh, once the Supreme Court has heard a case and has rendered a, a decision, it's final. There's no further court of appeal, right? Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, Congress can write a law that kind of gets around that or a later Supreme Court can reverse that decision and undo it. But the point is, once the court has rendered a, a decision in a case, it is final, no further appeal. Well, no one can lay a charge at God's elect because the, God's court is the highest court in the, in the universe. And once he has declared a verdict, there is no room for appeal or further judicial action against us. No one can lay a charge against us because God has justified us. And just as no one can bring a charge against us, so too no one can condemn us in verse 34. Who is the one to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. Who can condemn the one for whom God has said in verse 1 of Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's Paul's declaration of the gospel. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who's left to condemn us? Again, the answer is nobody. <laughs> no one. In fact, Jesus Christ is probably the only one who could condemn us, and he isn't going to condemn us, considering he died for us and then was raised for us. Think of the story in John 8 with the, the woman caught in adultery, right? So the Pharisees have pulled this woman out. She's been, she was caught in adultery, and they're getting ready to stone her, and Jesus is there, and they say, you know, what do you say, Rabbi? You know, this woman was caught in adultery, and what does the law say? And, 
And Jesus says, well, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. In other words, Jesus is the only one there who could rightfully be without sin and could rightfully condemn this woman. And what does he do? He doesn't condemn her. And he tells the other people around, he's like, look, if you are without sin, then you can condemn her. But none of you are without sin. That's the point. And they all walk away. And he's the only one left there. And then he says to the woman, it's like, where are your accusers? <laughs> and she's like, oh, they're, they're gone. He says, well, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Right? The point is, Jesus could condemn us, but he doesn't. Because he died for us, and he was raised for us. We talked about this a little while ago, uh, but in recapping Romans 3, 21 through 26, the death of Christ was a propitiation, was an appeasement, an atoning sacrifice for us, which paid the sin debt that we had and also satisfied God's wrath against us. And that his resurrection, Christ's resurrection, then confirms that his sacrifice for us was pleasing and acceptable to God. And now Jesus is, as we say, at the, in the place of honor. He's at the, at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. In fact, Hebrews 7.25 says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. That's what he's, one of his ministries now is the great high priest at God's right hand is to intercede for us. So when anyone attempts to condemn us, when anyone comes and tries to condemn one of God's elect, Jesus steps in and says to the Father, Father, this is one for whom I died. This person, this woman, this man is mine. There is no condemnation because I have claimed them. I have died for them. What Paul says here is drawn from the prophet Isaiah. Paul is often fond of quoting from Isaiah throughout his writings. And in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 8 and 9, The prophet says, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Well, Paul now moves out of the courtroom motif as he takes us to another rhetorical question in verses 35 and 36, where he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul here lists several things in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. I'm not going to go through all of these and explain and try to define. I mean, in many cases, they're somewhat, you know, self-definable, right? Self-explanatory. And many of them overlap and are synonymous anyway. But the point is, what they do is they all describe the different kinds of hardships that Christians can and have experienced in, in the history of the church, Right? I mean, the list includes things that can happen to all people in general. Distress, peril, famine, nakedness. You know, those are things that happen to anybody. Then things suffered for a Christian testimony. Tribulation, persecution, the sword. The sword speaks of being executed for your, for your testimony to Christ. And then Paul 
in verse 37, quotes from Psalm 44, 22, where he says, but for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now we preach through this Psalm 44. We did this back in December. And when we, when we preach through this, uh, we said that sometimes bad things happen to God's people. It's a fact of life. We also looked at that concept a couple of weeks ago when we considered Romans 8.18, how suffering is a part of the Christian life. Christians are not immune to suffering. In fact, it is expected. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted, it has been given to you, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, so your faith has been granted, but also to suffer for his sake. Your faith, your suffering has been granted to you. It's like, here you go. Here's some suffering for you because you are a believer in Christ. But the point is, is that Jesus himself suffered. Why should we, his followers, his disciples, his children, expect any less? John, he says it in John 15, if the world hates me, they're going to hate you too. But the point is that we shouldn't see suffering as somehow meaning God no longer loves us. That's, the, that's what Paul is saying. Is, Look, just because you are suffering, just because you're going through these things, doesn't mean God has taken his love from you. Because none of these things, as terrible as they are, can separate us from God's love for us, which is in Christ. Now, it can be very tempting to see our suffering as a sign that God doesn't love us. In fact, the devil is good, would use that all the time. How can God love you if you're going through this, that, or the other thing, right? You know, Satan was allowed by God to afflict Job. And what does Job's wife say to him? She says to him, why don't you curse God and die? Look at all the things that this God you follow has allowed to happen in your life. Why do you still follow him? He doesn't love you. But again, if you remember back in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within your hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So suffering, you know, not, in fact, it's not a sign that God's love has left you. In fact, what it is, it's a sign that God is maturing us in our faith. We are taken from tribulation. Tribulation produces a perseverance in our souls. Or it produces the character of endurance and perseverance, which then increases our godly character and then helps us to focus on our hope to come, which is comes when Christ returns. And again, I go back to Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. All of these things that Paul mentions in verse 35 are just paving the road to our glorification. And in fact, these things listed in verse 35 would then fall into a category of things not worthy to be considered um, anything, right? These are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And it may sound trite, but the Bible does teach that for God's elect, what awaits us in glory is far better than even our best days in this life. And none of these things can separate us from God's love because God's love for us in Christ is unbreakable. It is unbreakable. 
Well, Paul in verses 37 to 39 now brings this passage to a crescendo where he talks about us as being overwhelming conquerors. So after telling us that there's no charge that anyone can level on God's elect because God has justified us and Christ has died for us, and and after telling us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, Paul now tells us we are overwhelmingly, that we overwhelmingly conquer. But in all these things, again, pointing back to what he just said, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, most of your translations, if you're using NKJV, ESV, probably NIV, say something along the lines of, you are more than conquerors. Is that what your Bibles say, more than conquerors? That's a good translation. I have to admit, I like the New American Standards, overwhelmingly conquer. <laughs> because it talks about not just winning, but overwhelmingly winning. And that's what the word means. The word, literally, it's one word in the Greek. It's, it's hooper nikao, or you know, hyper victor. It means to be completely victorious. So imagine if the Kansas City Chiefs were to play against, you know, a 10-year-old peewee football squad, okay? Or if Michael Jordan in his prime were to take us one-on-one in a game of basketball, or if we were lined up for a 100-meter dash against Hussein Bolt, okay? We would lose. We would laughingly lose. We would be destroyed, okay? I mean, if in, the, in that 100-meter dash against Hussein Bolt, he would be crossing the finish line. We would probably be crossing the 20-meter mark, okay? He would, he would just kill us in that race. Jordan would be dunking on us all day long. The Chiefs would be destroying us on the field. That's the picture. Overwhelmingly conquered in Christ. I mean, do you, any of you think for a moment that if our salvation was up to us, that we could or would persevere? If my salvation at any point in my life depended upon me, I would be doomed and damned. It is only because God is for us. And that's why I agree with the late great R.C. Sproul, who said we should really call this doctrine, instead of the perseverance of the saints, he said we should call it the preservation of the saints. Because the truth of the matter is, we only persevere because God preserves us firm in our faith. Now again, Paul articulates in verse 37 that we overwhelmingly conquer in all these things through him, that is Christ, who loved us. Some verses here that talk about this. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith, In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live, I live by faith in him because he lives in me. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory in Christ. Or another one of my favorite verses, John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you. So that in me, he's talking to his disciples, this is Jesus, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Not you have overcome the world. I have overcome the world, and you are overcomers in me. And then Paul in verses 38 and 39 puts sort of like the cherry on the top of this theological Sunday. 
as he says here, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So again, looking back to verse 35, Paul rhetorically asks, who will separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one and nothing. And Paul begins verse 38, for I am convinced, I am persuaded by this. I am, I am standing on sure, solid rock ground. Now, what has convinced you, Paul? What has convinced you that this is true? The gospel has convinced me that this is true. Everything I've been talking about, everything we've been looking at from Romans 1.16 and on is gospel truth that is convincing us, that should have us convinced that nothing and no one will separate us from the love of Christ. God's love is unbreakable. And the things he lists here, he lists even more things in verses 38 and 39. Death nor life, various orders of angels, nothing past, present, or future, various ranks of demonic forces, nothing in all of space, nothing in in the entire created order. So how many things can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Zero things. There are no things that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, that critical union with Christ passage, Christ Jesus our Lord, in Christ Jesus our Lord, How much does the Father love the Son? Infinitely, right? So how much will God then love us who are in the Son? Infinitely. There's nothing you can do that would ever break God's love for you. Because there's nothing you've done to earn God's love. It's already been given to you in Christ. So then how does this affect your Christian comfort? Does this not strengthen your assurance of your salvation? To know that you can be convinced that God's love for you is unbreakable? Now, how do I know I'm a recipient of this love? You have to check your heart, right? Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, examine yourselves. You know, make sure you're calling an election. Do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Do you hate your sin? Do you want to grow in holiness? Do you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? And do you renounce any attempt on your own to earn or merit your salvation and righteousness with God? If you answer yes to those questions, even if you recognize you don't fulfill them as well as you should or as well as you ought, because no one loves Christ as well as much as they ought to. No one loves God as much as they ought to. No one is as holy as they need to be. But if you recognize that at least you want to be these things and that you at least love Christ a little bit, that you at least love God a little bit, then that is evidence that the Holy Spirit has not only regenerated you, but is also sanctifying you. And that is an evidence that you are a recipient of this unbreakable love in Christ. 